Amen. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What joy it is to sing that and to be reminded of that truth this morning. Church family, if you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the gospel according to Mark, the gospel of Mark. That is in the New Testament. If you're newer to the Bible, it's about two-thirds of the way through. You get to the New Testament, and then Matthew, Mark is the second book. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2 and into chapter 3. But before we dive into God's Word this morning, we have a pop quiz. Gasp, right? Here it comes, all right? A pop quiz on some common English idiomatic expressions. I promise it won't be hard. You'll do great, okay? So I'll kind of start the expression. You finish the expression. Uh, When you share a secret with others and it's not time to share it yet, you let the cat out of that. See, you guys are really good at this. You let the cat out of the bag. I actually had a friend in seminary that was from Brazil and expressions don't always translate. And he's like, why are you guys putting cats in bags? Why are you letting them out of bags? I don't understand. Uh, All right, here's another one. Uh, A good thing that seemed bad at first, it's a blessing in disguise. Good. Uh, When you avoid saying what you mean because it's uncomfortable, you beat around the bush. You don't notice how long something lasts when you're having a good time. Time flies. When you're having fun, and this last one, when you're about to be in serious trouble, you're about to be in some hot water. I was talking about this with my wife, Katie, earlier this week, and she said, you're about to be in some deep (laughs) doo-doo. But I didn't think it would be appropriate to name the message that, so we stuck with in hot water. This morning, as we turn to Mark chapter 2, we're going to find Jesus in hot water water. Uh, Jesus is about to experience some conflict with the Pharisees. The trajectory of the story is about to change, and we've heard it said, you don't know what's in a tea bag until you put it in hot water, and then what's inside of it starts to come out, and that's what we're going to see here with Jesus this morning as we look at this in Mark chapters 2 and 3, what is actually going on in the inside, the core of who Jesus is, who is this man will see him put to the test and who he truly is in the midst of conflict. We'll look at five different scenes that Mark has specifically and on purpose arranged together. Uh, These events didn't necessarily happen subsequently, but the gospel writers, when they're writing, it's not just biography, it's not just history, but they're also writing with a theological purpose. And so different gospel writers will arrange different stories in different ways to help communicate a theological truth. And that's what Mark does with these five scenes. Uh, Here we're going to be confronted with two essential questions. Uh, The answers to these questions change everything. They've already altered the course of all of human history, and depending on how you answer them, they will change your life and your eternity. The two questions, question one, who is Jesus? And question two, why has he come? Who is Jesus? And why has he come? 
Perhaps these are questions that you've considered before. Maybe in your heart and your mind, you've already settled on your responses. You have a definitive answer to these questions. Uh, Maybe for you, these questions are brand new as you come in this morning and you're asking, and that's why you're here, who is this Jesus guy that everyone is talking about? This morning, we're going to see five crucial answers to these questions. Now, as we look at these texts here in Mark chapters 2 and 3, there are all kinds of allusions that is pointers back to the Old Testament. And we're not going to be able to develop all of those, but we're going to talk about what's critical for our understanding of who Jesus is. We're going to be paying special attention to who the characters are in the narrative, what they're saying, and what they're doing And that'll help us to interpret God's word and understand what God is saying to us this morning. So, Father, we pray that you would show us more of who Jesus is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We start off with Jesus, the forgiver of sins. Jesus, the forgiver of sins. This is where Pastor Michael brought us last week in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But in this particular story, Jesus is revealed to be the forgiver of sins. It gets to the end of the story after the four friends lower their paralyzed friend down through the roof. And Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees see this and they respond. It says that they are questioning in their hearts. Hang on to that. They question in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. This scene ends with the declaration that Jesus does in fact have the authority to forgive sins. He looks at the man, he says, pick up your bed and walk. And it demonstrates that he is the very son of God, the forgiver of sins, and he alone has the authority to grant that forgiveness. Now, when we look at this story, we very quickly want to go to having the heroic faith of the four friends who were willing to rip open the roof and drop their paralyzed friend through so that he could get to Jesus. But this week, as I was thinking about it, I had to step back and I had to consider, hold on a second, before I put myself as one of the four friends with heroic faith, I have to recognize that I'm actually the paralyzed man. I am the one who is desperately in need of Jesus to forgive and to heal. And so before we go on to asking the question, how can I do ministry like that? How can I do whatever it takes to bring others to Jesus? We must first stop and recognize that we, you and I, are the paralyzed man in the story that needs Jesus. It's easy to say that at a theological level, but it's harder to really recognize that in the core of our beings that we are in desperate need of Jesus's forgiveness. This first scene that Pastor Michael brought us through last week, who is Jesus? He is the forgiver of sins. The answer to question two, why has he come? Well, he came to provide forgiveness. He's the forgiver of sins who came to provide forgiveness forgiveness. Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 17 is the next story. Here we see Jesus revealed as the physician. Jesus is 
the physician. Look with me, please, at Mark 2, verse 13, and we'll read through 17. It says, He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, or Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this scene here, Jesus tells Levi, tells Matthew, the tax collector, to follow after him. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with the historical context, what was going on is the Jewish people, they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had come in, they had conquered that nation, and now they were occupying their land and oppressing the people. And so what they did is they would take Jewish people and they would hire them to be tax collectors. And these tax collectors would go to the Jewish people and they would collect taxes from their own people so that they could give the funds to the oppressors. But oftentimes what the tax collectors would do is they would hike up the bill a little bit so that they could pocket some of that extra change. And so the tax collectors were some of the most reprehensible characters in the society at that time. They were compromisers. They were considered religiously unclean. They were excommunicated from the synagogues. They were socially and religiously unacceptable. Not only does Jesus seek out Levi, Matthew, this tax collector, not only does he invite him to follow after him, to be one of his disciples, but then he says, hey, let's sit down Let's have dinner together. This would have been unthinkable for a Jewish man to sit down with a tax collector. It was the most intimate kind of fellowship in first century Palestinian culture to sit down and share a meal together. And here is Jesus doing it with the tax collectors and others that the Pharisees have identified as sinners. The Pharisees, they sought to maintain exclusive fellowship so that they would avoid becoming impure or unclean. And so they organized their whole lives around being able to perform their religious duties and they see Jesus not just crossing the line but obliterating the line by seeking out Matthew and sitting down for dinner with him. Now notice before, the Pharisees were questioning in their hearts who does this guy think he is? Now in this scene, they get a little bit more bold. It says they went and they asked Jesus's disciples, why does he eat with sinners? You see, the Pharisees, they believed that there was such a category as those that were too far gone. Those that were outside of the reach of God's ability to save, outside of the reach of God's grace, they were too far gone, they were too sinful, they could never change. They had no chance of reconciliation. They'd acted so sinfully that God could never 
forgive them. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but it's those that are sick. Jesus comes and he reveals himself to be the physician. And he makes it clear he has not come to applaud the self-righteous. He's the physician and he has come for those who recognize that they are desperately sick And it is only those who recognize that they're desperately sick that will receive his healing. Jesus dispels the notion of someone being too sinful or too far gone to be brought back in. Those who see their desperate situation, those who know that they cannot do what they must do, are the ones that Jesus came to save. Those who assume that their righteousness is sufficient to satisfy God's holy requirements are the ones that are excluded. It is only those who recognize how much they need him. Jesus is the physician. Why has he come? He has come to provide healing. The healing that you and I desperately need. Again, I want to take this as quickly as possible to application of befriending unbelievers and being willing to risk my reputation for the gospel, bringing it to those that are socially unacceptable. And that's true. But first, friends, we must recognize that we are the unacceptable ones that Jesus accepts. He came to provide healing for the sick. God save us from ever thinking that we can obtain righteousness on our own. I don't know if you've come in this morning and you've had that thought of, I'm too far gone. I've just done too much in my life. I've sinned too much. I've sinned too hard. And now the Lord can never reconcile me, never bring me back into relationship with him. Here, Jesus is showing that that category doesn't exist. Or maybe you've come in here with the assumption that your good can outweigh your bad. That if you just work hard enough and you try your best and you do more good things than you do bad things, then you can earn your salvation. Jesus is showing us here in this passage. You're not saved if you think that you can get there on your own. You must recognize you're sick and you must go to the physician and seek your healing from him. You cannot heal yourself. So here we have two of the five scenes. We see Jesus, the forgiver of sins, coming to provide forgiveness. Jesus is the physician. He's come to provide healing. And now in this third story, Jesus is the bridegroom. It's a little unfamiliar. We'll unpack that here in just a minute. Mark chapter 2, look at verse 18 with me, please. We'll read through 22. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That is, they weren't eating anything. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Everybody got that? Crystal clear, right? We got patches we're sowing, we've got wine we're drinking, and wineskins bursting. It's like, what does all of this mean? Uh, up to this point, Jesus' actions, healing, uh, meeting with tax collectors and sinners, they're not being applauded. They're not being commended. The tension is starting to rise. The conflict is increasing. And the Pharisees, they began by questioning in their hearts. They moved to questioning the disciples. And now Mark inserts this scene to help us understand what happened before and what happens in the next two scenes. This is kind of the hinge point that helps us rightly interpret what's on both sides. And so, Jesus here is shown quickly to be different than John the baptizer and the disciples of the Pharisees. This is something completely different, completely other than what is going on in the religious landscape of the time. So in this section, we've seen it. We've got bridegrooms, garment patches, and wineskins, all of these things foreign to our culture and our time. We could discuss all of the cultural significance, but I want to put on the table what is absolutely essential. Why did Mark put this scene here, and why is Jesus saying these things to the Pharisees? Essentially, we see that Jesus is the bridegroom. This is something that was used all throughout the Old Testament to describe the relationship between God and Israel. It was seen as like a marriage relationship where God is the groom and Israel was his bride. The people, they're waiting for this establishment of this new relationship, this new covenant that God had promised in the Old Testament where things would be different in their relationship with him. Jesus comes and he's heralding to them, the time is now. The time has finally come. The bridegroom has arrived. It's what he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What Jesus is saying is, I didn't come to amend the law. I didn't come to adjust the Mosaic law or assimilate my ways with the Mosaic law. No, in Jesus, the law is fulfilled In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees and he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come rather to fulfill them. He didn't come to patch up the old with something new. He didn't come to utilize the structure, the wineskin of the old, and to fill it with a new substance. No, he got rid of the old wineskin. He got rid of all the other stuff prior, and he's saying something new has come. It's not Jesus plus. It's not add Jesus to the way that you were doing things before. It's Jesus has fulfilled all of that, and now a new time in God's relationship with his people has come. Jesus did not come to say, hey, let me just be a part of your thing. You seem to be doing pretty well on your own. Let me just kind of tag along, and when you need me, if you need me, just let me know. Or I'll be here just as a golden ticket. The only time you should need me is when things get really out of control or when you finally die. Jesus is saying, out with all of that. I have come 
as a fulfillment of and a completely new replacement of all that was before. Jesus is saying, I am the only way. In me, everything changes. Jesus is the bridegroom. Why has he come? He came to change everything. God has been progressively revealing himself and how man is to relate with him all throughout redemptive history. And here it climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. All things in human history had led up to this point. They had been pointing toward Jesus. And in Jesus' coming, all things now are going to flow from his coming. Jesus is saying, I am here. And this has always been the plan. I am the way. You will not have relationship with God through self-actualization. You will not have relationship with God through the power of positive thinking. You will not have relationship with God by manifesting it into existence. Jesus is saying none of that is the way. I am the only way. It won't even be through your religion. It will be through relationship with me. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's come to change everything. In this next part of the passage, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. Look, please, back at the text in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees, they were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We begin this next scene, this fourth scene, and Mark tells us that it happens on the Sabbath. It's really important. If you look at the rest of his gospel, oftentimes he says like one day or some days later, or he went out again. But here he's being very specific to let us know that the events that he's about to discuss are happening on the Sabbath. It's massively important, specifically because of the conflict that he has with the Pharisees. When the Lord rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he established the Mosaic Covenant with them. It was an agreement between God and the people of Israel how they were going to do relationship with one another. And then God gave them a sign of the covenant, the sign of the Mosaic covenant, the way that God's people would demonstrate that they were walking in obedience to that was the Sabbath. Now, if you think about it, in the ancient Near East, in an agrarian society, to give up one day of work that meant life and food and sustenance was a massive faith move that would have been different than all the other nations around them. And so God says to them, here's what's going to make you distinct. Here's what's going to demonstrate that you're my people. Take one day, 
Work six, but take one day where you step back and you demonstrate your faith in my provision. God told them, I'm doing this because you experienced 400 years of oppression and slavery and bondage in Egypt. And I want you to be reminded of your liberation. I want you to be reminded of your freedom every time that you observe the Sabbath. But we are a people who love the law. It's our pride that makes us love the law. We say in our hearts, just tell me exactly what I need to do and I can do it. Tell me exactly what I must do and I'll pour forth my strength and I'll accomplish it all on my own. That's what the Pharisees were doing with the Sabbath. God gives them this command that they should observe the Sabbath for their good, that they would be refreshed and reminded of their dependence on God. And instead, the Pharisees, they take it into their own hands and they reshape what God meant to liberate and they fashion it into a tool of bondage, of slavery again. They established 39 specific rules that they laid over the top of God's word on how people were to observe the Sabbath. This wasn't in the Bible. This wasn't thus says the Lord. This was 39 of their ideas of what they think it looks like to observe the Sabbath. Ridiculous things. Like you can tie a knot that only requires you to use one hand, but if it requires two hands, don't even think about it, right? Those and 38 other laws on top of what it looked like to faithfully observe the Sabbath. They made what God made something that was supposed to bring refreshment into something that was a crushing burden. Friends, that's why the preceding scene was so important. That's why Mark starts this scene by noting that it took place on the Sabbath. He tells the readers that in Jesus, everything changes, and now he's showing them what he means by that. Now notice too, as we've been observing and following the trajectory of the conflict, the Pharisees start by questioning in their hearts. Then they question Jesus' disciples, and now at this point, they're talking to Jesus himself. The Pharisees say to him, why are you doing what is unlawful? And Jesus uses this question to show the Pharisees how far they've departed from the heart of the law. The law was given out of love from a good father that loves his children. The law was meant to protect and nurture relationship. It was given for the good of his people, not their enslavement. And so Jesus alludes back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David and his men did what was unlawful in a time of need. He then says that the Sabbath was given as a gift to man. And it should not be twisted into a burden. Oh, friends, let's not take the good gifts that God gives to us and twist them into burdens. Jesus is the Lord, and as the Lord, he is the one who established the law. As the Lord, he is the one who judges the law, and he is the one who maintains the law. And now Jesus is saying that he came to provide fulfillment of the law. 
Jesus has come to provide fulfillment of the law. When God gave it, it was good and holy and right, but mankind in our sinfulness twisted what God meant for good. Later in Romans, we're reminded that the promises of God, they don't belong to the adherents of the law. This would make faith null and the promise void. Man cannot fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and to transgress any one point of the law is to transgress all of the law. And so all along, the law was never meant for something to bring us righteousness. It was a guardian that was given to us for a proper time for when Christ would come and ultimately make all of the promises of God yes in him for us to inherit all of God's promises through Jesus and his work. He came not only to restore the law to its proper place of protecting and serving God's people, but he came to fulfill the law once and for all. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. He is the Lord, the, law, the Lord of the Sabbath. In this final picture, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we'll see that Jesus is the Savior. This final scene connects immediately with the last one, but here the situation is heightened as Jesus now brings the conflict to the Pharisees' home field. He enters into the synagogue and gives them home field advantage, and Jesus is getting ready to bring the battle to them. This time, Jesus initiates the conflict. They began by questioning their hearts. They asked his disciples. They asked Jesus, and now Jesus says, all right, enough, guys. I'm going to take charge of this. Here's how this is going to go. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Again, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Just step back for a second. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we just kind of read through and we read the next thing and we're not, like, here's a man who has a withered hand. There's something seriously wrong with him and you can see it physically. And the Pharisees are watching, just chomping at the bit. They're like, oh, we hope Jesus screws up because this will give us our opportunity to take him down. I mean, completely devoid of mercy and compassion in their hearts rather than rooting for Jesus to do a miraculous thing in their midst and to heal this poor man's hand, they're seeking to accuse him. And so Jesus gives them a layup. He's like, hey, is it okay to do good or harm, to save or to kill on the Sabbath? It's an easy question. And the Pharisees should have responded promptly, of course, Jesus, do good, save a life. Instead, silence. The pursuit of self-righteousness has completely desensitized them 
to the purpose of God and to the suffering of man. Their pride has so hardened their hearts that they don't care what's going on around them. They're so focused on their thing. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Here's Jesus, the maker of all things, the one whom all things exist for and were created by, and here is one that he has created, suffering. And Jesus is looking at him, preparing to heal him, and the Pharisees, because of their hardness of heart, don't want to see this man restored, and Jesus is grieved, and he's angry. Once again, seeing them shackled to their tradition, they're bypassing the heart of God's law. See, according to their tradition, it was unlawful for Jesus to do any kind of work like that on the Sabbath. They would reason in their hearts, Jesus, you have six days when you can heal this guy. Why don't you just wait until tomorrow? But Jesus chose this day. And he wasn't going to let it go one day longer for this man to suffer. And he wasn't going to let it go one day longer where he wasn't going to demonstrate that he alone is the Savior. And so in verse 6, after Jesus heals this man miraculously, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This scene is dripping with irony. Jesus does good in loving this man and healing him. The Pharisees do harm in clinging to their hypocritical traditions. More than that, Jesus saves a life, but the Pharisees leave seeking to destroy a life. Rather than rejoicing in the display of the power of God and the restoration of health and life, they plot to destroy Jesus' life. Mark 3.6 sets the trajectory for the rest of the gospel of Mark. It is on the heels of this conflict that we have seen rising in the last five scenes that the Pharisees decide once and for all that this Jesus must be destroyed. Why did Jesus come? He came to be destroyed so that you and I might live. He came to die so that he could provide life. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as we prepare to close here this morning. Throughout these five scenes, we've been asking these two essential questions. Who is Jesus, and why has he come? Who is Jesus, and why has he come? Jesus reveals himself to be the forgiver of sins, not just in general, but specifically of your sin and of my sin. He came to provide that forgiveness. Jesus is the physician who came to provide acceptance to the unacceptable. He is the bridegroom who came to provide the only way to God. 
Jesus is the Lord who provides fulfillment of the law, and he is the Savior who has come to provide life. Jesus gives clear answers to these two questions, and the Pharisees respond by rejecting him. Friends, it was their pride and their self-righteousness that blinded them. They wanted to assimilate Jesus into their life rather than surrendering to him. This morning, Jesus holds out to you and to me the same forgiveness, the same freedom, the same salvation. Do you reject him as a Pharisee? If so, you must recognize that you in your heart have plotted to destroy Jesus. Indifference is not an option. In your hardness of heart, you are either seeking to destroy him and rid him of your life and cast him aside, or do you embrace him as a sinner in need of forgiveness? As a sick person desperately in need of a physician, do you cling to him to bring you into relationship with God? Do you rest in the fact that in Jesus the law is fulfilled and in him alone you can be righteous? Have you called on him to save you? Do, do you believe that salvation is found upon his destruction on the cross? If you've embraced him this morning, then rejoice in the freedom and in the forgiveness that he's given to you. I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Pastors are going to be down here in the front. And I want you to be considering in your own heart this morning, how do you see Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Do you recognize your desperate need for him? And have you surrendered your heart to his lordship and clung to his forgiveness? Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word, for the hope that we have in Jesus. This morning, I pray for those in this room that have not surrendered their hearts who have not softened their hearts towards you and responded with faith and repentance, for those that are seeking to be righteous on their own. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself this morning, that they would cling to you, that they would see you as the forgiveness that they desperately need in Christ. And Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room who have turned from their sins and trusted in you, would they rejoice this morning in your goodness, in your faithfulness, in all that you've given to us in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand and respond. Our altar is open if you wanna come forward this morning.